Hello, everybody. This is another new episode. This is a new chapter of the Grand Architect webinars. Today's feature is Andrew Lopez, and we're going to start talking about budgeting to investments. Andrew, would you like to say hello to everybody? Hey, how's it going, guys? My name is Andrew, and it's definitely a pleasure to meet you. Now, Andrew has to give a disclosure before we can continue um, because we're talking about budgeting and finance and, um, and we don't want anyone to get in any kind of trouble whatsoever. So Andrew, could you explain that disclosure? Yes. Yeah, so uh, I currently am registered by FINRA under my Series 6 and Series 63. So please keep in mind that this is not into any individual um, advice for your specific situation. Um, so please don't take this personally. It's just meant for general advice and not for your specific situation, whereas every situation is slightly different. So, Okay. Yeah. Well, and I'll give everybody a little bit more background. Um, I suck at budgeting. <laughs> and um, I've actually asked Andrew, as he's a member of the King of Prussia Mastermind Meetup group that I started uh, about a month ago, um, to share his financial expertise with me, but it's not actual financial expertise. It's just, you know, budgeting 101 and then potential ways to budget to start investing potentially. And for any of you people who don't have bank accounts or, you know, looking to open up a bank account or looking for, you know, just some general good advice on how to budget and how to prepare to start investing, you could just stay tuned and we're going to have an open forum about those topics. Does that sound good to you? Sounds perfect. All right. So let's get started. And the title of this is How to Budget. Take it away, Andrew. All right. So uh, like Wilbert mentioned here, um, the overall topic of this is just going to be how to budget. And then from there, how do you take that to specifically growing your general wealth um, and kind of like what I vaguely mentioned before, there is no one size fits all approach. This is meant just to be a generic thing that you can, you know, just use for generic purposes. And there are definitely ways to critique what I'm putting out here, but this is like I said, a general approach. So, um, so step one, um, it's just, to, to sit down, track all of your expenses. Um, the best, the easiest way to do this is um, if, if you just go onto your bank's website, they usually have some sort of way that you can print out your statement or you can just go into the bank and just ask for those bank statements. And generally I would recommend you get up to at least the past six months, just so at least you have a lot of data there that you can look over and see and break that down to see what you're spending each month and be like, oh, I'm spending $300 a month in food, $1,000 in housing every month. Um, just to get a, a good idea of where that is and uh, track where each dollar is going, basically. Now, why, why is six months a good number versus three months to one month? So I generally would say six months because it's a good long-term average or a better maybe long-term average as opposed to one month where a one month thing could be slightly skewed because you could, you, you might've had, let's say a car repair that costs you 10, uh, or no, maybe like a thousand dollars. And that's something that's unusual or just you for some reason didn't spend a whole lot of money. So it, the numbers could be slightly skewed over maybe a one month or two, three month period. Whereas six months, generally speaking, gives you a better, average okay so over six months period is just a better frame of reference of what you're doing with your money and two quarters of data financial data would be a good way to estimate or project for the next two quarters is that kind of like a good way to put that yeah absolutely and like i said this is on average like it and like i mentioned some six months periods could be you could be spending more or less than what you may do, but it's generally on average, fairly accurate. Okay. Um, all right. I'm going to move to the, to the next slide. Okay. Uh, step two is once you uh, make that uh, budget or, or not make that budget, but 
see where that money is going, um, the easiest way to create more wealth for yourself is just find things that you could cut out of your budget. Um, some people realize that they're not, let's say, subscribed to, let's say, Netflix or have other subscriptions that they're just consistently paying every single month and they're not even using. So, or they have a bad car loan um, that for a car that they maybe don't use or maybe too ex- extravagant for their lifestyle. Um, and a crazy stat on the car loan is that the average person has a car loan of $500, which is pr- a, a decent amount of money when you think of that the average salary in the United States is right around $30,000 uh, per person. So it's, you could, I can guarantee you, and this even goes for myself, that if I look through every single person's budget, I can find at least one thing that you can just cut out. And even if you just invested that money right there that you cut out, you will make a lot of money in the future just by do, simply just doing this. And this is something that you could start doing today. Um, so when he says, if there are things you can't cut out completely, such as maybe internet or cell phone, find cheaper alternatives, right? So here's a real case example. My last cell phone bill was about 800 and something dollars. Jeez. And my internet bill sometimes teeters between, uh, let's just say 150, 170. And the main reason why I keep falling into these pits is because you have the ability to you know, make a payment arrangement, which actually requires a little bit of money down, but start snowballing your your potential future payment because you decided to make a payment arrangement. And you can do that both with your internet and cell phone bills. So for somebody like me who has, who maintains a, a high cell phone bill, internet bill, due to the fact that I am, you know, irresponsible with my budget or paying bills on time, what would be like a, a recommendation that you would tell me? Yeah. So maybe something that like that, I would say maybe, uh, a call your provider for, let's say your cell phone, right? Because if you just try to negotiate them, you could probably find a cheaper bill or they could put you in a plan that could save you money. So for instance, I know that with, let's say sticking with cell phones here, if you stick with, like, let's say, an unlimited plan, uh, it's generally speaking cheaper than people who would go over their data caps uh, on a consistent basis. Um, so it's just maybe going to those providers and be like, hey, look, can I lower my bill or are there cheaper alternatives that could save me a little bit of money here and there? And like you mentioned, once you save ten, twenty dollars a month, that may not sound like a lot, but put that over two, three, four years. That will add up a lot. Right. And the years are going so much quicker now. For so like I couldn't believe two thousand eighteen is over the way, you know, how fast it's going at this point in time. But that totally makes sense. Right. Exactly. All right. Uh step number three, start paying off any debt that isn't making you money. So um, some, this is maybe a little bit controversial because it's, there's definitely a lot of gray area in here. Um, I know I put down in the first point, uh, pay down student debt. I can definitely understand that there is some controversy on that, but generally you want to pay down any sort of debt that you aren't making a very high ROI on because you could be putting that money back to work, let's say in let's say an investment property or stocks or something that you're at least getting some sort of return. Whereas let's say a car loan that's going right into a depreciating asset and you're not making any, but on the flip side, if you're, if you have, let's say a rental property that you took a mortgage on the, the need for you to pay that off as soon as possible, isn't 100% necessary because at least you're getting some sort of cash flow um, on that, or at least hopefully you are. Um, so it's, like I said, I know there's a lot of gray area to this, but I would generally speaking, try to pay down as much money as on debt as possible, just so you can use that money to invest or put away or do something with it. Let me ask you this question. For those of us who don't have rental properties or, or, or debt that is actually creating revenue or creating ROI, 
what would you recommend would be healthy debt to, to acquire to increase ROI for somebody who has bad credit or doesn't have debt that is accruing ROI? Um, so in that scenario, I would say don't touch debt. Build your credit first. And um, yet again, I know this may be a little bit controversial, but I am one of the few people that would say as long as you're responsible, credit cards can be useful. So get maybe, let's say, an unsecured credit card. Or sorry, not an unsecured, a secured credit card just to build your credit and start stockpiling money away so you can invest or so you can maybe have a rental property. But I would not recommend if you have a low credit score just to be like, oh, yeah, let me just go buy a house. Yeah. No, that's a terrible idea. I'm sorry. Now, what if what if I had a secured credit card before, but it got closed down because I missed a couple of payments? Would I still be able to open up another secured line with another bank? It depends. It depends on the bank. I you may be able to, but I, I would generally, and at that point, I would inquire what with the bank that issues the card. So I, that's more so a case by case situation. Right. One bank I think that you're familiar with, and I'm not sure, is it okay for me to actually talk about the bank that you're more familiar with, or should we leave that bank out of it? No, I, I don't mind it. Okay, so I know you're more familiar with Citizens Bank. Um, as far as their, uh, 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 I guess, approval process goes, do you think it would be a good idea for the individual to pay off all secured credit cards before trying to open up a credit card line? Or if they do have a balance, still try to get that secured card because that's going to be a way for them to start building immediately as they plan out paying off the old credit card. Yet again, that's a tricky question because not to toot Citizens Bank's credit cards or to my own home for working there, uh, but we have we have zero balance transfer credit cards. So what that means is, let's say in your the scenario you laid out there, you have let's say maybe ten thousand dollars of credit card debt, and you want to transfer that over to a credit card, you would pay zero percent in credit or in interest. Sounds nice on the surface. So you're just like, oh, cool, no debt or no interest on that debt. But with some people, that may give them an incentive to put on more debt because of that zero percent interest. Right. Uh, assuming it's a credit card debt in this case scenario. Okay. Uh, but if you're on a mission to pay down that debt and build your credit and then maybe invest, I would say go for it. But yet again, that depends on the person and if they're responsible or at least have a plan to be responsible. Okay. All right. that, that makes perfect sense. All right. Step number four this one's, yet again, there's a lot of gray area here, and it really depends on your situation, but boost your income if necessary. Um, this could be, there's no one-size-fits-all answer to here. This could be by getting a second job, starting a side hustle, maybe picking up a few more hours if you're an hourly um, employee, or just an easy thing. Let's be honest, we all have some random junk just sitting around, so maybe just sell some of that just to get some extra cash in your pocket just so you can have at least some short-term money just to, you know, pay down some debt or just to invest or do something with it, uh, at least in the short term. Um, you know, but with a lot of people, their income is not necessarily their biggest problem. It's just their spending. But at the same time, it's kind of like the flip side where they may have a very lean budget, but you're working a minimum wage job where you need to maybe boost your income in some way, shape, or form. So it it really depends on what your situation is, I guess. Okay, so outside of selling, you know, stuff that people may or may not want, how else would you recommend that people uh, boost their income? Is there is there any like recommendations you have or some some easy tricks that somebody may be able to do? Start a business of some sort with no capital investment. Give me some ideas about how I can boost my income yeah so um i know websites such as weebly they offer websites for free that you could just hop on and start selling shit i mean pardon my french there but you can literally hop on 
just maybe create an online business where he's selling stuff with nothing, like zero capital right off the gates. But then once maybe your um, site starts you know, gaining some traction, maybe just buy out the domain code. And then you, and you could buy that for less than $5 a month. So even still, it's relatively inexpensive to do, assuming you have the money to do it. Um, also, maybe if that's not your thing, maybe just get a, a second job on the weekends because you have some additional time. So if you pick up eight, 10 hours, um, even if you're working minimum wage and you're working 10 hours additionally per week, that's you know $72.50 pre-tax per week where over the long term or over a course of a year that is about $3,700 which I mean that that's a decent amount of money that you could maybe just throw out some debt or do something with yeah I mean that sounds like it could go into like a money market account and potentially earn some high yield interest right yeah I mean yet again there's no one size fits all but it if you at least if you put that in a money market, yeah, you would at least receive something, and it's a very low risk investment right. that that you could, like you said, earn at least something. Right, right. So, do you think it's also a good idea while you're boosting your income to ultimately resist yourself from spending? Oh, one hundred percent, yes. That's and that's why I put uh, reducing your spending first because. Um, you, you need to cut out every, everything as possible and make your budget as lean as possible. And then if you see, oh, crap, I got to get more cash flow or get some sort of new income, then boost your income. But like you said, you need to do something with that that is not decreasing your net worth. You need to be try to use that to your advantage and try to increase your net worth in at least some way, shape, or form. Could you give me uh, two other ways that I could potentially uh, increase my income outside of starting my own website business, selling stuff? Because I mean, you know, it's not like you could just you could go to Webly or uh, Weebly. I forget what the, what you call it, what the name of it is, but um, it's it would take some research. It will take some investigation, and in order to kind of get the necessary insights to to craft a good shot or craft a good value proposition to sell something, I think that would take some time, right? I don't think you could just like sign up and automatically just hit the ground running and, and make a dollar in the first day that you create the site. Like it will definitely have some cadence to it that once you start working harder, you could potentially build up to nice residual income. But like what, uh, and you did say get a part-time job working, you know, 10 hours a week, anybody could pick up a restaurant job working on the weekends, I guess, um, you know, busting tables, washing dishes, doing something that they may not feel is ideal, but give me one more, because I asked for two, but actually you already gave me two. Give me one more thing that somebody could do to increase their income that doesn't require them to dedicate more hours working for somebody else. And it doesn't dedicate them, you know, it doesn't require them to set up a website because you know some people may not be as technical savvy as technically savvy as we are or other technical savvy people are i really want to aim at the person who who really feels like they may not have many options but they don't want to go work somewhere else over the weekend part-time and they don't want to they, they don't want to touch on something digital that's going to potentially take a learning curve and potentially discourage them in the future so do you have any other like little little tricks in your bag of tricks that you know could be useful to somebody who wants to generate some income kind of around kind of around that same ideal where you're making about 72 bucks every weekend and about three thousand dollars you know at the end of the year really the only two that i can think of off the top of my head um would generally be capital and or at least somewhat capital intensive so i generally would not recommend to most people in this sort of situation, but those would be either A, in start investing in dividend um, income investments. So whether that's ETFs or stocks themselves, 
But yet again, that's very capital intensive. So you need to have a lot of money in those investments in order to yield a decent, you know, income based off just the dividends alone. Um, the second would be uh, open up a high yield savings account because, but yet again, this is also somewhat capital intensive. So I know we've been in an age of very low interest rates, but we're finally in an age where you can actually receive 2% guarantee or almost guaranteed per year on high interest savings account, which is something you really haven't seen for the past seven, eight years. So, but yet again, those are really the only two additional options, but they would require a decent amount of capital for you to get some decent amount of money out of them. So I had an idea earlier today when I was going through my monetization process for the various uh, products that I offer, such as consulting um, that comprises of, you know, strategy sessions or proto strategy sessions or proto strategies or um, proto plans, which is just kind of like a strategy plan. And uh, 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 there was one more, oh, audit, audit, audits. So performing audits for people that are really just based off of a template that I put together, but it's a list of questions. People pay like 25 to 50 bucks. Somebody performs an audit for them and then they take a share in the profit. Um, now that, that dedication could be like an hour or two during the week, maybe a few hours on the weekend. You can make like a couple bucks on the pop. Uh, let's just say for every audit you do, uh, you get $25, but it's a template and you just go through the information, you follow the template and bada bing, bada bing, boom, you submit the template, you, you, you stamp it with your markup approval that it meets the template requirements and you'll get a couple bucks. You don't really need to exactly have skills and you don't really need to have uh, uh, know-how. It's just an easy way for you to learn a new skill or learn something that could be potentially useful what do you think about that kind of financial architecture? Do you think that would be useful for people? Yeah. And I, I 100% agree with what you're saying that maybe if you want to work maybe only two or three hours a week, but maybe make a half decent money just over that few, those few hours, maybe let's say in your example, 25 hours per or $25 per hour. I mean, if you work two hours, that's 50 bucks right there. Um, a similar example could be becoming a notary. Now, I know it's pretty expensive to become a notary, but over the long term, you could make decent side money just by going around people saying, hey, I can notarize your stuff for you and only maybe charge you 15 bucks for you know, 30 minutes of work. So it's th- those two examples are very easy ways to make some extra bucks that's, you know, you could maybe only dedicate a few hours tops per week. So, I think that makes um, uh, that makes great great sense. It's something that I definitely have been um, brainstorming, and one thing that I will definitely be. Uh, putting out to the the group, the community, um, as well as most other people that I know. And this is a very strong monetization strategy that, again, that I was working on today as I'm monetizing my products for commercialization. Um, It's a way to collectively generate not jobs, but revenue for people. So people who might want to just pick up a quick couple bucks by doing some audit forms, um, you know, a week, it'll be easy to teach people these different things. And whether the audits are for marketing, legal, financial, like, like the sky's the limit because um, there's, there's audits literally for everything that we do and everything that we can potentially do. So I just think it's a very strong way to monetize. And it's another great way to offer value back to our community, um, in a collective way, uh, but I just wanted to put it out there to kind of get your idea about it. Something I'm definitely cooking up and we're definitely going to talk more about in the future. But um, I want to talk about step five, have an emergency fund of about six months. Let's break that down and let's talk about the logic. So 
I generally tell people to try to have an emergency fund of about six months. Now you hear in most, you know, financial experts or advisors, um, maybe such as Dave Ramsey, um, that say have 36 months. Um, but I generally recommend six months just because let's be honest throughout our lifetime, we're going to live through an experience where shit's going to hit the fan and the economy is going to tank. And we might be the victim of a job loss, company failure, or something, or maybe your own personal business fails. In that situation, what are you going to do? What's your short-term plan before getting a new job or starting a new business or doing something else? You need to have at least six months of buffer room just in, in case. Um, now, I, I can definitely imagine, well, you might remember 2007, 2008, where the, the sky was basically falling and everybody was like, oh my God, this is the end of the world. <laughs> yes. that, that, that may happen again. I, I'm not saying it will because we can't predict the future, but what if it does and you can't find another job? You need to have some sort of backup money. And I would, like I said, in point number two, Put it in a high interest savings account just so at least say, like I mentioned before, at least you're maybe getting 1.9 or 2% on that. And you rarely um, have to put additional money in there, at least assuming your um, income stays relatively the same. So, What's the third? Oh, um, sorry. Yeah. So with the third one, adjust with any lifestyle changes such as moving or more expensive or cheaper area. So, or maybe a higher income. So maybe an example would be, let's say you move from California to Alabama, right? California is substantially more expensive than Alabama. um, Assuming you maybe make the same amount of money. So in that scenario, you could maybe reduce your emergency fund because you would have less expenses over the short and long term. So you could maybe risk putting 10 or 20% of your emergency fund into some sort of investment, whether it's a rental property or stocks, bonds, or whatever, because you're in a cheaper area. So you can, you don't need as much money in your bank account. um, That's just earning constant rate of interest. Whereas maybe you let's or let's say on a different situation, you get a ten thousand dollar raise, or you maybe got ten thousand dollar pay cut. In that scenario, you need to adjust your um, the your emergency fund based off of your life changes, um, because like we mentioned before, if you make more money, you might have a temptation to spend some more. So maybe just put some more money away if you make more money. Okay. Now, I, I came up with a really good way to add more value here. Yeah. Now, say I'm an individual and I make 28K and I want to segment my savings into three segments, right? I want to segment for retirement. I want to segment for emergency. And I want to segment for uh, investment. Okay. At $28,000, how would you recommend I break down those three categories, right? Because everybody talks about retiring, but I feel like most sentiment right now, people have given up on the idea to retire, and that's a problem because that's kind of consigning yourself to an endless thought cycle that you're just going to be working until you die. Right, right. And then I also want to think about people always preparing for an emergency versus living a life just compiled of emergencies. It's just one emergency after the other because you haven't stopped and said to yourself, I'm going to stop living chaotically, which creates the emergencies because I haven't developed the financial responsibility backbone in order to stop these emergencies from happening. Because people nine times out of 10 create the chaos or create the emergencies Incidentally, because they don't know any better or because they haven't practiced the behavioral pattern that is successful or they just weren't prepared for an emergency. So lastly, 
the investment piece is because I hear so many people talk about investments and what I want to avoid is people throwing their money into the investment market, such as Bitcoin, such as gold derivative or gold uh, raw commodity. Uh, I want to avoid people putting their money into liquid assets that isn't really shielded. I want to come up with a way to kind of segment those percentages based on income levels and understand what your recommendation would be for retirement, what it would be for an emergency fund, an investment with somebody who has $28,000 as annual income. I think that from what you said there, I think you hit the nail right on the head. And that's, I think you couldn't have said it much better, honestly. Uh, But turning to your question, um, I would, I would maybe change it around a little bit in terms of, I would start with your emergency fund first. I wouldn't even, assuming you don't have any emergency funds available, don't even start investing. Don't start saving for retirement. Your number one goal should be put throw as much money into a high interest savings account or some sort of side account as your emergency fund. Don't think about investing. Just throw as much money in there as possible. Whether it's $100 a month, $500 a month, throw as much money in there as possible. But let's 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 calculate here. At $28,000, you know, let's just think the common the not like the common factor of survival is about 1500 bucks a month, right? And um, if we do some math, let's just say people are able to survive on 1500 bucks a month. <laughs> That's $18,000 per year. That's $18,000 per year, which gives a potential opportunity for $10,000 in savings. But that doesn't sound right to me. So let's actually take that up a little higher, right? Because we ultimately know that people in that range could potentially work their way down to ten to $18,000 in expenses. But let's just do something that's like a little bit more, to me, let's say $2,500. Oof, oh, that's not good. Twenty five. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, that's probably where people are living at, which is why they hit those problem points. You know what I'm saying? They probably are living at the twenty five hundred range, range, which is why their their expense would exceed their income about two grand. But we want to just have like a more realistic, and I'm gonna go with two thousand dollars in expenses, which equates to twenty four thousand dollars, which leaves about four thousand dollars for an emergency fund. And what you're saying is an emergency fund should be six months of what kind of savings? Should it be like savings for the rent, savings for food, savings for travel? How are we categorizing this? Yeah, that's a good question. So that's six months of expenses for rent, food, um, and any other basic necessities. Anything, assuming that you, you can, it's stuff that you cannot live without or you cannot go that may maybe going about your day. So maybe you can throw in there, maybe gas or a car payment, um, you know, or in some other minor things that you cannot live. Some things maybe like a vacation, you can probably cut out of your budget and wait going on vacation for a year or two, just so you could save up. Right. Uh, but it's just things that you 100% need and it, it, you would feel vulnerable if you didn't have those things. Okay, so we could say like rent, food, travel, communication. Yeah, like internet. And basic necessities like internet and utilities. Or So we'll just say, instead of saying basic necessities, let's just say utilities. Because you, you don't need it, but it probably would be a good idea to have heat in the wintertime and air in the summer as well as internet and um if you have gas or electric stoves making sure that you're able to cover your utilities so we'll just say food we'll say rent food travel communication and utilities well maybe you communication could now nah, we'll, we'll keep communication separate from utilities because utilities are different i mean you you probably could you, you probably would need to have at least a cell phone just to get by if you're let's say applying to jobs or have a job so you kind of need that just as a exactly um so i mean with those five categories 
I mean, I honestly would think that the monthly budget would probably, if we're spending $2,000 at that point a month with $28,000 of income for the year, um, I guess we could just do a little computation real fast and try and not take too long. But um, if you've got 28000 and you divide that by the year, you've got about $333 or $334 left over after your expenses. So naturally, what is seemingly like you would need to do is, is really have no outside expenses. You will need to completely go gridlock and then with the remaining 300 or you know 340 or 350 that you might be bringing in, you should just be dumping that into savings, right? Or how would you split that that remaining money up into savings? No, yeah, I would like you said, just dump it into savings and that's why I put um Step number one as, or sorry, step number like one slash two is tracking all your expenses and cutting everything out. So assuming you're, like you said, at a bare bones budget, throw as much as possible into your emergency fund, just so you have that there, just in case it hits the fan. Not saying it will, but just in case. Okay. So at 28K, you're not doing retirement and you're not doing investments. However, after you've been able to save up um, $6,000, because that would, be, that would be three months of your expenses. So really, you need $6,000 to cover six months. Wait, wait, wait. Your expenses are, no, you need $12,000 in savings. Um, to match six months at that at that at that income level, you would need twelve thousand for six months. And being that you only are able to, let's just say, put away three fifty, that would mean you need to save for basically three years. You would need to discipline yourself and and remain disciplined for three years, or you have to identify identify more ways to reach that twelve thousand dollar goal by working more or by by you know increasing your income, right? Right, like so, some sort of combination of in, like leaning your budget more and increasing your income. But like we mentioned before, I, we can de- I can definitely understand why you may not be able to cut your budget, you know, down to zero. That's unrealistic. But in that scenario, try to increase your income in some way, shape, or form. So. Okay. Well, we're not going to be able to cover the the higher incomes, but I wanted to talk about that income level because that income level actually represents a very large group of people. Okay. Step six. Yeah, so step six, put at least 10% into a retirement account. And this is 10% of your gross, not net income. So before tax income, which is one thing I forgot to put in here. So... Um, and like I said, it, I can definitely understand why it may be difficult for some people um, to do it, and they may need to get a second job or keep that second job or side hustle just to do it. But it's if we take our twenty-eight thousand dollar person, right, and say that we want to put away ten percent, that's you know two hundred and thirty-three dollars per month. Um, so that's even less than what we we're doing for our emergency fund. So it should be feasible, assuming we have the same budget for most, you know, people. But I would definitely recommend that this is just using a bare minimum thing, just so that you could, you know, stash as away as much money as possible uh, for retirement. Okay. Um, so ideally. Who has the income to put away 10, 10% of their gross into a retirement account? At what income level should they be doing this or focusing on? Call me crazy, but assuming you have an emergency fund, all incomes. Call me crazy, but I, I believe that you should try to do it at all incomes. So emergency account first. Yeah. Then you get into your retirement once you hit your goal of emergency savings. Correct, correct. You need, you need the emergency money first, and once you've done acquiring the emergency money, 
and paying that paying that up as rapidly as possible, um, then you can focus on retirement savings. Because once you establish your your uh, your emergency fund, uh, you could continue to contribute to it, or you could start taking those funds and putting them into different areas now because you've got your nest egg and it's solidified and situated. And now you could just move into retirement and investments with that same ideal, right? Right, exactly. It's just, you know, the, you're basically doing the same thing as saving money or put, building your emergency fund. It's just for now in this case, just a slightly different purpose. Instead of, um, oh, I need money put aside just in case I get a flat tire. Now you're thinking, well, what if maybe Social Security doesn't last uh, when I'm 65 or 70 years old and I need some extra money? You know, what, 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 what do I do now? You have to obviously save for that potential situation. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but you never know. Awesome. Okay. That's good information. <laughs> Okay, steps five or six B, safe for retirement and house. Oh, well, let's definitely talk about this. Yeah, so this is actually, I'll, I'll personally admit, this is the exact situation that I'm in. So uh, I can definitely put my money where my mouth is in this specific step. So um, I, I would say, uh, right? So if, for instance, for my personal situation, I put about 6% of my retirement uh, income into retirement and about 9% of my income for saving for a house. Um, and that's well over that 10% benchmark for when you combine the two. Uh, and I would generally recommend that assuming you have your emergency fund set, you have no um, additional debt, but you want a house, um, definitely try to split retirement um, and saving for a house at least 50-50 because at least if you're saving for a house and you're saving for retirement, um, you can focus on both and not get sidetracked at the same time. Um, and like I said, there's some of the numbers can vary by situation. Uh, maybe you want to focus a little bit more for retirement because that's more important to you, but you still want a house. So maybe you could do 7% in retirement, but 3% for saving for a house. So um, it really just depends on what you want to do and what your goals are. But I would definitely recommend doing at least some degree of both if you want to save for retirement, which I highly recommend doing. And you also want to have your own house. So, Okay, makes perfect sense. Here we go. How to invest with a low income. So this would be how to invest with a low income. And you've actually got a plan. You've got your safety net, your emergency fund already put in place. And would you say you're already putting money into retirement or not? So in this situation, I would say you are not, but you are getting ready to do it, but you're maybe not necessarily sure what to do. This okay. is a general guideline of what you should do. Well, I, break it down. Yeah, so for low income, I said maybe less than $30,000. Um, now, I know that's a very broad definition, and there's you could definitely have some debate over that, but I would say the first thing we do, if you don't have a, a retirement plan available to you at work, set up an IRA, um, and please speak with somebody in regards, like a financial advisor in regards to what type of IRA is best for your situation. Um, but I would generally recommend that, or if you have a, like a 401k contribute to that because you may be able to get some sort of tax benefits. Please talk to your accountant, but, um, and oh, 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 time out, time out. please talk to who, please talk to your accountant because you may be able to get some sort of tax benefits, both, okay. both in regards to your retirement plan at work, as well as an IRA. But talk to your account because you may. I, I think uh, uh, I could speak for a good number of people and say that um, um, 
they don't have accountants. <laughs> people people with low income don't have accountants for the most. So do you mean like a tax professional? Like maybe they can call their their like uh, H&R Block or their Jackson and Hewitt uh, tax person who helped them the previous year and just say, hey, I'm about to get an IRA. What would be the best IRA, you know, from a tax standpoint that I should be getting versus going to an accountant who might be much more expensive? Yeah, absolutely. You can definitely do that. And like you said, like H&R Block, TurboTax, they have those professionals available that could give you that advice. Um, the only reason why I say that is because of the disclosure in the beginning. I'm not an accountant. I cannot give tax advice. So please talk to a professional. I don't want to give you wrong or misleading advice. So please talk to a tax professional in regards to what type of plan you should set up. Um, now, in regards to the type of broker, maybe use a Robinhood or other low-cost broker to maybe save some money in terms of commissions. And also, it's way cheaper than a financial advisor. And I'm probably going to guess that most people that are making less than $30,000 will not have a financial advisor. Most case scenarios, like assuming that. Um, I would say invest for the long term, whether it's through ETFs or mutual funds. Um, and if you have the time, maybe look into individual stocks. Uh, and in terms of the example that's there at the bottom, um, I would say kind of like the, the second to last step that we just mapped out, put as much as you can away. Even if you just put away $25,000 or sorry, $25 per month and you assume an 8% interest over 45 years, you're going to have a hundred or over $120,000 over that 45 year period, just by only putting 25,000 or $25 per month uh, for 45 years, which is that's $120,000 you didn't have, you know, yesterday. Yeah. But you know, ultimately I look at that number and I go, okay, well, who would this be most beneficial for? And I think it would probably most be beneficial for a lot of younger kids, like parents creating savings accounts for fu like future accounts for their kids. Um, myself at 30 years old, um, putting away 25 bucks a month for 45 years. I mean, I would love to live to be 75, but um, you know, I don't know if I will be, and I don't know what at 75 years old, at 75 years old, what I'd spend 120,000 on, if not for somebody younger than me. Oh yeah, and that's definitely a fair critique right there. Um, and the, these are just for example purposes and not for every situation. So yeah. I guess maybe two things that you could or sorry, you could actually change all three of those numbers there in terms of dollar amount, interest, and years. So for instance, in your situation, maybe you, it's more like, I don't know, 30 years or 35 years, uh, but you, could pr you may be able to contribute way more. And in terms of the interest, that's actually a low ball interest compared to what the S&P 500 has done over the past 90 years. So over the past 90 years, S&P 500 has averaged a nine or over a 9% return uh, for the past 90 years. So even if you just stick with the market, you're probably going to get about a 9% return. So that's that 8% number is actually a low ball estimate. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's good. <laughs> and I like I like the way that we were able to change that up. And I know it's just like a general template, but ultimately we want to be able to make this relatable to some people. And trust me when I tell you the relation that I took out of it right away was, okay, 25 bucks over 45 years. I'm, I'm concerned about my younger generations. And I mean, if you were to take this to a collective, um, a collective mindset and a collective atmosphere, this could be a great way to set up scholarship funds. This is a good way to set up um, future investing or, you know, angel investing funds for young entrepreneurs or, you know, innovative programs in the future. So just, there's so many different ways to potentially utilize in a collective manner, more so than a single manner, um, 
putting away 25 bucks a month for 45 years at 8% being 120. I mean, if a hundred people did it, that number would increase to a million, wouldn't it? Right. Exactly. And yet again, you're, I know I'm getting too much into the weeds here, but assuming everybody did it, those returns might be up just because so many people are blowing money into the markets. So it could be even higher returns. Right. Could keyword could be <clears throat> right, right, right. Because we can't predict markets, but I mean, ultimately, I'd like to pick something that we could potentially um, lock in at lock in a good rate and have a guarantee. And if we wanted to segment, then you could get into more riskier things. But that would probably need a collective decision making and a, a you know a, a process behind it. But now nah, I'm on the same page with you. I think this was this was great actually. <laughs> So for this next slide, how to invest with the middle income. Um, I generally put it as an income of $30,000 to $150,000. That's a huge plan. Yeah, that's, I know that's a huge, huge jump that maybe somebody with a family of four with one income at $30,000, that's not a lot of money. But right. same situation, but at $150,000, that's a life-changing amount right there for most people. Right. Uh, I know this is, these numbers can be skewed. Yet again, it depends on your situation. Right. Most people within this income range, generally speaking, have some access to a work retirement account. Um, so let's say a 401k or a 403b. So I would highly recommend trying to stash as, as much money in there as possible. I know I put there, it could be good for tax purposes, but yet again, please speak with a, tax consultant or somebody that knows more about taxes than myself. Um, also try to maybe use also a low cost broker or robo advisor uh, because you have more money to deal with. And I would only say recommend that as well as maybe recommending um, an IRA financial advisor or real estate. If you max out your 401k. Um, that's just my personal opinion, and the only reason I say that is just because there may be a lot of good tax benefits to a 401k, especially considering you can deduct either 18500 or 24000 depending on your age, into a 401k. And to most people in that age bracket, that's a decent amount of money, so... Are you still there? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry. It just stopped, you just stopped talking abruptly. I didn't know if you were done covering the material. You were actually something happened. I'm dying. <laughs> um, okay. Let's do this last cover here. <laughs> How to invest when you are rich. Um, so, yeah, if you're investing and you're rich, um, I generally would say maybe if you're have an income of over one hundred fifty thousand um, dollars, and I would generally speaking recommend either a financial advisor or a robo advisor. Um, What's a robo advisor? So think a, a robo advisor is a it's kind of a a tech or a, a um yeah like a technologized version of a financial advisor. So um, if you've ever heard of Wealthfront or Betterment. What they do is they, they're online platforms that they will ask you a set of questions and based off of your answers to those questions, they will invest in passive index funds. And generally speaking, these robo-advisors cost ballpark of no more than about 0.4% of your total assets in their management, which is substantially less than most financial advisors. But the thing with a robo-advisor is in, I would say, 75% of the time, there is no human behind the scenes. Whereas, obviously, with a financial advisor, there is somebody behind the scenes doing it for you. So, it's just a computer doing the investments there for you in some sort of passive form. So, Okay, well, that definitely creates a new topic of discussion that we won't have right now. 
Yeah. <laughs> but Robo advisor, I was like, what are financial what are financial advisors gonna do in the next five to ten? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I mean, think about it this way. Uh as of right now, I believe it's robo advisors only have about point three percent of all money in retirement accounts in the United States. So less than 1% are in some sort of rope advisor. Um, so at least as of right now, it's not really a threat because there are some people that want that person to person contact, but you know, down the line where there are a lot of millennials and Gen Z people that want that, you know, robo advisor just because of the low cost. Um, and you know, they, they make a fair point and I largely agree with them. So I, I definitely think you're, you're right that financial advisors will in the long run be goodbye, gone. Wow. And, and think about, um, you know, the phenotype or, you know, yeah, let's just call it the phenotype for financial advisors and how many people offer those, you know, those, those jobs or those, those businesses or, side hustles, I wonder what they're going to do when they've been replaced by a robo-advisor and um, what value or what emerging markets they're going to create at the same time. It's terrifying but interesting because when we innovate, we emerge. So no matter what, if we innovate, there will be new emerging markets. Like if you look at the way, for instance, uh, Lyft has become this new common part-time job for everybody. Right. So I wonder what will happen when robo-advisors become the new bank teller, the new bank manager. You know, this is kind of ideally where the future is headed when technology can replace people. Right. And I definitely think you're right. But I will say with, let's say I'm taking Wealthfront X as an example, and I am actually on their site as we speak right now. So they have the option to either have a lower cost option where you can invest um, with a simple advisory fee of 0.25% or use a wealth advisor uh, that you can basically just like dial into, but they're not doing, you know, that face-to-face contact for a, it's 0.4% of an advisory fee. So there still are financial advisors out there. It's just that, if you're somebody that doesn't want to pay a huge amount of money in fees, yeah, goodbye financial advisors, basically. Well, again, they're putting the burden on the customer. They're not, they're not, you know, they're assuming no responsibility. They go, well, you could use a robo-advisor or you could pay a hefty much more money and use a real person. But, you know, that money that you could be saving using the robo-advisor is potential reinvestment money. That's just if you need the face-to-face. And like I said, in five to 10 years, I'm sure a robo-advisor with tapping into machine learning and AI uh, may even be quicker than five years, man. Like our digital divide and our innovations with technology, the rotation of a continuum has become so short. They're dropping new phones with, 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 with spectacular specifications and, and designs and capabilities every Every quarter, every quarter is like a new latest and greatest phone. Yeah, I mean, how, how do you think Apple and Samsung make their money? I mean, they, they, they need to do that. So. Yeah, and in return, they hire more people, they do more manufacturing, they leverage different economies. But again, that, that's a different talk. Because yeah. uh, <laughs> again, I, don't, I, I appreciate your time and I don't want to take too much time and you know, deviate from the purpose. Um, but it feels like this is the last slide. And with any closing remarks, I, I mean, on my end, I just want to thank the audience for listening. And hopefully you learned something. Please provide uh, like feedback, ask questions. I'm going to definitely segment this up into each slide into its own weekly episode, just because I feel like nobody's going to listen to this entire thing. Yeah, so this is going to be segmented definitely, and I'm going to actually thank thank everybody, and I'm going to thank you. I really want to thank you for taking the time out and doing this because you know this wasn't planned the way I normally plan things. So I definitely appreciate you hopping on and filming this with me tonight. 
Yeah, definitely my pleasure. And to any of you out there, definitely feel free to reach out on you know, social media or whatnot if you have any other questions, concerns, or just anything. When I create um, the series out of this content, I'm going to collect the information that you want to share. And every platform that I put this series on is going to have your contact information, as well as like a summary of who you are and what your goals are, the vivid vision for Mr. Lopez here. And then people will be able to connect with you, ask more questions. I feel like this is a, like a very good way to, to build and get more awareness out there so people can actually start making better financial decisions and ultimately acquiring the next step in their personal freedoms. Yeah, and, and I definitely agree. And I'll, I'll definitely let you know of what social media platforms I'll, that you can reach me on. So um, like I said, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out on those, those platforms that are provided.